minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist Wall this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Wash my hands. Oh, Aren't I lucky? That's right, they call me Lucky Joe, not Lucky Phil. This is the last week of the year, and guess what? I'm not here. This program is pre-recorded, and so is the program for the first week in January. But I thought you'd kind of like to hear my dulcet tones. And so uh, we're talking about something which is quite interesting, and we'll be celebrating the 160th anniversary of this year, believe it or not. If you remember what Anarchy is all about, Anarchy Society is a voluntary non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power. It's a society of wealth is held in common. And why these concepts? An anarchist is somebody who believes in a society without rulers. That's it. All it means is without rulers. Anarchos, without rulers. And uh, as a postmodern anarchist, that's what I describe myself as, I'm not burdened by ideological considerations and historical precedents, and that's what it's about. It's about creating society without rulers. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the Victorian Land Convention. Now, I can see, I can see people around the country, as this program is broadcast on the community radio network, I can see people around the country saying, oh, yeah, the Victorian Land Convention Boring, boring, boring. Well, in 2007, when I first wrote this article, I was basically the only person in Australia who celebrated the 150th anniversary of the Victorian Land Convention. And the Victorian Land Convention was held between the 15th of July to the 6th of August, 1857. And my researching of uh, this particular convention gave me a lot of impetus in understanding how direct democracy works. Because the Victorian Land Convention convention was basically direct democracy in action. And this year, 2000, well, next year, 2017, will be the 160th anniversary of the Victorian Land Convention and we're going to do some type of celebratory event, possibly on the 15th of July, 2017. But uh, keep listening and... Uh, We'll let you know. Now, my chagrin. I had no knowledge about the importance of the Victorian Land League, the Congressional Assembly of Delegates, the Victorian Convention and its Standing Council, until I did some research on the riots which occurred outside the Victorian Parliament on the 28th of August, 1861. 
As an anarchist, I've always promoted direct democracy as an alternative to parliamentary rule and have tried to highlight the difference between delegates and representatives. To my chagrin, almost 160 years ago, the question of land tenure in Victoria had been debated and acted on by tens of thousands of Victorians who used the delegate system to establish a working alternative to the Victorian Parliament. The aftershocks of the Eureka Rebellion were not only felt in the Victorian Supreme Court in 1855, when the 13 men tried for high treason for their involvement in the Eureka Rebellion by a jury of their peers were acquitted. The question of land tenure and land reform became a serious and immediate issue as the tens of thousands of men and women who had flocked to the goldfields who had not made their fortunes required access to land to survive. Within 20 years of white colonisation, the squatters had displaced the indigenous population from their lands in a brutal frontier war that resulted in the deaths of most of the indigenous population. Survivors were forced to forage on the outskirts of white settlements or work for the squatters for food. The squatters leased vast tracts of Victoria from the government for a peppercorn rent and controlled both houses of the Victorian Parliament before Eureka and the Upper House Legislative Council after Eureka. The pressure for land reform was unstoppable. The Victorian Land League was established in December 1856. Thomas Loder, the Secretary of the Victorian land, Victoria Land League, invited a Congressional Assembly of Delegates on the 20th of June 1857 to formulate a program for constitutional and land reform. The response, especially on the goldfields, was immediate. 89 delegates were elected to debate these questions. The Victorian Convention met from the 15th of July to the 6th of August in 1857 at Keeley's Hotel at the corner of Spring and Lonsdale Street in Melbourne. It established a standing council which met weekly well into the early 80s. 1860s. The Victorian Convention met opposite the Victorian Parliament House in the old Eastern Markets, the site of the new Victorian Government Treasury Offices, enacted as an alternative, as a viable working alternative to representative government. Supporters of the Victorian Convention, who were elected as members of the Victorian Lower House, caucus as the Convention Corner Group. Today's program examines the specific role individuals played in the Convention and examines the resolutions, proceedings and documents of the Victorian Convention that assembled in Melbourne from the 15th of July 1857 to the 6th of August 1857. The slogans of the Victorian Convention, a vote, a rifle and a farm, and three selection and three grass, are radical ideas that 150 years after they were initially raised in Victoria, must be given, actually 160 years after they were initially raised in Victoria, must be given the historical recognition they deserve. The Victorian Convention provides a template activists in 2017 can use to promote the delicate system as an alternative parliamentary rule. 
And when I spoke about three selection and three grass, don't get your knickers in a knot. I'm not talking about three marijuana. I'm talking about three grass for sheep and cattle. You've got to, you've got to explain everything, don't you? In the beginning, Indigenous people had lived in Victoria for over 40,000 years. During this period, they established patterns of land ownership that included every rock, every body of water and every tree in Victoria. Different tribal groups and different clans within tribal groups were responsible for specific parcels of land. The effects of colonisation were felt among Victoria's Indigenous inhabitants long before white settlers stole their lands. The establishment of a prison colony at Port Jackson in New South Wales in 1788 had devastating consequences for Indigenous people living in Victoria. The aborted settlement at Sorrento on the Mornington Peninsula in 1803 and the establishment of sealess camps on the Victorian coastline compounded the problem. Disease was the colonisers' main weapon. Smallpox, measles, pneumonia, scarlet fever, tuberculosis, cholera, syphilis and tetanus were diseases Indigenous people had not been exposed to before white colonisation began. Thirty years before settlers arrived with their sheep in Victoria, the once strong and vibrant tribes that had lived here for so long were decimated by disease. Thousands perished from common diseases they had no immunity to. When the French sailed past southern Victoria in 1802, they were amazed by the number of campfires they saw from their ships at night. There were so many campfires, it reminded them of the ports they visited in Europe. When Major Mitchell explored, in inverted commas, Victoria in the 1830s, he commented on the number of Aboriginal people he saw with smallpox scars. When the Henty brothers brought their sheep to Mount Gambier in 1835 and John Batman strunk, struck his dubious treaty with the Coolan people who owned the land on which Melbourne now stands on, they were dealing with tribes who had survived a Holocaust that shattered their traditional way of life and re- reduced the Indigenous population by up to 80%. The Hidden Frontier War Indigenous resistance to the occupation of their lands was immediate. The sealers who had established bridgeheads on the Victorian coastline in the early 1800s were involved in skirmishes with the local Indigenous people that resulted in deaths on both sides. Paradoxically, Victorian Aborigines' land management practices was the reason the Victorian countryside was so attractive to squatters. When Major Mitchell travelled across Victoria in 1835, he was impressed by the never-ending grasslands that had grown as a direct consequence of Aborigines using fire to manage the landscape, to provide food for the animals they hunted, and that it helped to promote the growth of tubers that formed a large part of their diet. When the squatters arrived with their sheep, the scene was set for a life-and-death struggle for the land. Squatters in Victoria were not ticket-of-leave-men ex-convicts who ran a few sheep on a few acres. They were normally the sons and agents of the landed gentry from England, New South Wales and Tasmania, who provided the capital to buy sheep, transport them to the pastures in Victoria and hire shepherds to look after their sheep. A small number of people occupied vast tracts of crown land in order to graze sheep on what they considered to be their sheep runs. 
They had legal title to the land via leases for which they paid a peppercorn rent to the Crown. The only thing that stood between them and their desire to acquire the land they had at least leases for was for the was the indigenous population. The ferocity and intensity of the frontier war which occurred between Victoria's indigenous population and the squatters between 1835 1836 to 1846 over who owned the land occasionally bubbled over in the colonial courts in Melbourne. Judge Willis, a man described by New South Wales Governor Gibbs as an apologist of the cruelest practices by some of the least respectful of settlers on Aborigines, told the Tasmanian Aborigines Tanaminoi and Pivoi, who were sentenced to hang on the 20th of January 1842 for taking up ards against the colonisers in the morning to Peninsula the Dandenongs, the punishment that awaits you is not one of vengeance, but of terror to deter similar transgressions. In February 1842, when six white men who stood trial in Melbourne for murdering four Aboriginal women and a child were acquitted by an all-white jury, Judge Willis criticised Governor Latrobe for allowing an action against those responsible for the deaths of Lubras. In May 1842, an Aboriginal man called Roger was executed for the murder of Patrick Codd, a shepherd employed by John Cox who murdered black men and raped black women. Governor Latrobe stated that by the murder of Patrick Codd by Aborigines, the sly murder of many of that race, Aborigines, was avenged. The favourable judicial outcome in Melbourne accelerated the murder and expulsion of Victoria's Aborigines from the lands they had continuously occupied for over 40,000 years. To the squatters, the Aborigines were vermin who stood in the way of their ambitions to convert their leasehold titles over the land to threehold title. Orders in Council. The beginning of the campaign for squatters' property rights. The British government attempted to normalise and legalise the theft of Indigenous land by squatters in its colonies through the use of orders in council. These orders were proclaimed in the Australian colonies in 1847. The orders recognised that squatters had the right to hold lengthy leases over the land they had squatted and outlined a mechanism by which the squatters could transform pastoral leases into freehold title. The land that had been squatted were divided into three districts, settled districts, intermediate districts and unsettled districts. In Victoria, around 720 squatters had, within a decade of white colonisation, occupied the whole state. The land around Port Phillip Bay was designated as a settled district. The western districts and Gippsland were designated as intermediate districts and northeast Victoria and the Wimmera were designated as unsettled districts. Very few squatters occupied land in the Port Phillip district. The squatters in western Victoria and Gippsland were granted the first right to buy one square mile of property surrounding their homestead and were also granted eight-year leases over all the lands they had squatted. After the end of the lease, the squatters' lands were to put up for sale to the highest bidder. Those squatters in the Wimmera and North East Victoria were granted, 18, were granted 14-year leases over the lands they had squatted and the sole right to purchase their property at the end of the lease. 
in order for the transformation of leasehold property into freehold property to be legally recognised, the sheep runs that had been established would have to be surveyed. The squatters applied pressure on the colonial authorities to issue leases without surveying the sheep runs as they were concerned at the consequences of the increasing number of migrants who were flooding into the colonies. As soon as the leases over the lands they had squatted were issued, the mad scramble began by the squatters to convert their leasehold titles into freehold title. The scene was set for a titanic struggle between those colonists who wanted land and franchise reform in Victoria and the squatters who wanted to convert the lands they had stolen in the undeclared secret brutal war they had waged on the indigenous population into threehold title. Gold, the beginning of the struggle for land reform. Discovery of alluvial gold in Victoria in 1851 posed a direct challenge to the squatters' monopoly over the land. Within two to three years, the population had Victoria had increased from around 50,000 to over 250,000. White individual miners were able to wrest a fortune from the ground with a pick, shovel and their bare hands. The squatters' problems... Sorry, wild individual miners, yeah. The squatters' problems were limited to finding labour to look after their sheep as their shepherds ran off to the gold fields. Once the alluvial gold ran out... The tens of thousands of miners who had crowded onto the goldfields' attention turned to the monopoly the squatters exercised over the land in Victoria. The demands of the Eureka miners in December 1854 were confined, were confined to the liberty component of the universal revolutionary demand for land and liberty. Were not confined to the liberty component of the universal revolutionary demand for land and liberty. While individual miners could extract a fortune from tiny plots of land, they had little interest in acquiring land. Once the alluvial gold ran out, faced with the problem of earning a living, it didn't take long for the miners' attention to turn to the question of access to land. Eureka was important to the land struggle because it taught the miners the value of direct action. Although the rebellion had been crushed in the sea of blood, the call for political reforms became unstoppable. The acquittal by Melbourne juries in the first half of 1855 of the 13 miners charged with high treason for their participation in the Eureka Rebellion further radicalised the people. The diggers had lost the battle, but had won the war for political reform by the use of direct action. Access to land became the central issue among a restless digger population that had been radicalised by the 1848 wave revolutions that swept across Europe. The Chartist petition movement in England by Irish rebels who had participated in monster meetings in Ireland and by miners who had gone to the Californian goldfields to find their fortunes in the late 1840s whose views on land reform were influenced by the American homestead movement. The alienation of land in Victoria as a result of the squatters' monopoly over the land reminded the diggers of the conditions in the countries they had left. Concerned the old society was being replicated in the colonies, the issue of land reform became intertwined with the struggle for political reform. The Southern Cross rises phoenix-like from the ashes of Eureka. The land reform struggle begins in earnest. 
1850, the Australian Colonies Act was passed through the British Parliament. Victoria was given its own legislative council, two-thirds of whom were nominated members. In January 1841, sorry, in January 1851, Latrobe was appointed Lieutenant Governor for Victoria. On the 6th of December 1853, Hotham was appointed as Lieutenant Governor, taking over from Charles Latrobe. In March 1854, a constitution bill framed by the squatter-dominated Victorian Legislative Council was sent to London for approval. It caused a great deal of consternation among the diggers because although it called for the establishment of a lower house, the Legislative Assembly and an upper house, the Legislative Council, nobody could stand for office for the Legislative Assembly unless they owned more than two thousand pounds of freehold property and diggers could not vote unless they had taken out a 12-month gold mining licence. Considering that most diggers couldn't afford a month's licence fee, very few would be able to vote and even few would be able to stand for office under the new constitution. The miners' deputation of Black, Kennedy and Humphrey, which met with Governor Latrobe and the Colonial Secretary J.F. Foster and the Attorney-General W.F. Stahl a few weeks before the Eureka Massacre raised the miners' objections to the new constitution with the Governor. The new constitution gained royal assent and arrived back in Melbourne on the 16th of October 1855. The calls for electoral reform and land reform reached a crescendo when the Government Commission reporting on the Eureka Rebellion stated the land monopoly must be completely broken down. Governor Hotham died a broken man on the 31st of December 1855. It seemed the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion had been, been successfully drowned in a sea of legislation. The squatters still held a tight reign over Parliament and universal male franchise was still a dream. Faced with a squatter-dominated parliament, the end of the gold rush, unemployment and thousands unable to gain access to land, the question of breaking the monopoly the squatters held over the land became the paramount issue of the day. In December 1856, John Joseph Walsh and Thomas Loder formed the Victorian Land League. Walsh, born in East Galway, Ireland, moved to New South Wales in the late 1830s and later to Melbourne in June 1852. A journalist and political agitator, he became the first secretary of the Victorian Land League. The main opposition to the squatters manifested itself outside Parliament as the squatters controlled both Houses of Parliament in 1856. The Victorian Land League used the Southern Cross as their flag and agitated for a command mechanism of selection before survey. They wanted land to be allocated at a small fixed price or to be given freely to whoever needed access to land. They called for each man to have a vote, a farm, a rifle and three selection and three gra- grass were more egalitarian and revolutionary demands than any made during the Eureka Rebellion. They understood the struggle 
The land and liberty were intertwined. The Victorian Land League wanted to break the monopoly 720 squatters held over land in Victoria. They wanted to break this monopoly by levying a tax on privately unoccupied land that 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 unoccupied pastoral land be held in common for all to use. The abolition of land by auction, as only the rich could buy land at auction, and immediate free selection of 600-acre blocks before survey by Victorians who needed access to land. The squatters, faced with a significant threat to their land holdings and the threat of a second Eureka Rebellion, attempted to use their domination of Parliament in 1857 to turn unalienated land they had squatted on into threehold title. The fuse is lit. Convention of Delegates, 239 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne, 20th of June, 1857. Dear Sir, as the danger of the public lands being handed over in perpetuity to the present occupants is imminent, the bill for that purpose having passed its second reading, I am requested by the Committee of the Victorian Land League respectfully to ask your opinion and advice and desirableness and practicality of holding on an early day in Melbourne in some central place a Congregational Assembly of Delegates from every district and town in the colony to deliberate and determine some plan of united action by which this impending calamity may be averted and immediate steps taken to adjust on a comprehensive liberal and equitable basis that all-important question of the land, both as it regards the miner, the agriculturalist and the squatter. I beg to assure you that any suggestions you may kindly offer will be duly appreciated and acknowledged by the Committee of the League. An early answer will oblige. I have the honour to be, dear sir, your most obedient servant. J.J. Walsh, Honorary Secretary. Two days later, the following requisition advertisement was published in the papers around Victoria. Convention of Delegates. The various districts and towns throughout Victoria are respectfully invited to select delegates to meet in Congress in Melbourne on the 15th of July to deliberate and determine a plan of United Action which the Land Bill now before the legislator may be defeated and steps taken to adjust on a broad liberal and equitable basis the all-important question of the public lands as regards the miner, the agriculturalist and the squatter. By order of the Committee of Victoria Land League, Melbourne, 22nd of June, 1857, J.J. Walsh, Honourable Honorary Secretary. Faced with increasing pressure for land reform, concerned about the possibility of armed revolt, the First Ministry appointed under the Colony of Victoria 1856 Responsible Government Act, led by William Clark Haynes, introduced the Crown Lands Bill of 1857. The Haynes Land Bill of 1857 wanted access to land, please no one. The Haynes Land Bill of 1857, please no one. The squatters believed it went too far. Everybody wanted access to land, believed the Haynes Land Bill would endorse the 1847 orders in council and legalise the monopoly 720 squatters enjoyed over most of the land in Victoria. Faced with a Legislative Assembly and Upper House dominated by landowners, and as the parliamentary reforms demanded by the Eureka rebels, one man, one vote, 
had still not been introduced four years after the rebellion had been drowned in a sea of blood, the main opposition to the monopoly over land enjoyed by the squatters came from outside Parliament. Although only formed in late 1856, the Victorian Land League enjoyed enormous support throughout Victoria. The Victorian Land League, using historical predecessors they, they and their supporters were familiar with, the English Chartist Petitions and the experience of the Irish Tenant League, launched a petition campaign for land reform throughout Victoria that gathered tens of thousands of signatures. Its petition campaign gave the League the momentum and the credibility to call for local communities to elect delegates to sit in an elected People's Assembly in Melbourne to prevent the passage of the Haynes Land Bill through Parliament and raise viable alternatives to this bill. The proposed 1857 convention had all the hallmarks of an anarchist assembly. Local delegates with limited mandates concerning land reform were elected by local communities to represent their interest at an elected people's assembly, direct democracy in action. The object of the meeting is to gather and concentrate the opinion of the country to defeat the present land bill and to originate such a scheme as will be acceptable to the people and may fitly embody the future of land policy of the colony, the delegates. The Victorian Land League's call for local communities to elect delegates with the specific mandate of addressing the urgent question of land reform was taken up by communities around Victoria. The Land League left the decision of how the delegates would be chosen and the number of delegates chosen to represent each district up to the local communities. The committee declined to assign any number of delegates to any town or district. They preferred to leave this to the judgment and discretion of the residents themselves. It would, however, be extremely desirable that as influential a body as possible be deputed to join the convention. The Land League's committee also set the date, time and venue for the convention. I have the honour to acquaint you that Wednesday the 5th of July 1857 has been fixed for the delegates has been fixed for the delegates to meet in convention in Melbourne, the place of the meeting to be the long room of Keeley's Australasian Hotel at the corner of Spring and Lonsdale Street, the hour, 6 o'clock p.m. Keeley's Australasian Hotel was chosen as the convention venue because it was less than 100 metres, that's right, less than 100 metres from Parliament House. By meeting across the road from Parliament House, by meeting across the road from Parliament House, the democratically elected delegates posed a moral challenge and political threat to the representatives in both houses of Victoria's Parliament. The parliamentary representatives were primarily responsible to the squatters and landowners, while the convention delegates were directly responsible to the people who elected them. We do not consider that any delegate who attends the meeting is bound to any principles but to represent the opinion and sympathies of the district. The objects of the convention were clearly spelt out at the local meetings that were called to elect delegates. 
The object of the meeting is to gather and concentrate the opinion of the country to defeat the present land bill and to to originate such a scheme as will be acceptable to the people and may fittedly embody the future land policy of the colony. On the evening of the 15th of July, 1857, 67 delegates arrived to take part in the convention. Their numbers swelled to 88 within a few days. All the delegates were men. Delegates were chosen, included members of local courts, members of municipal councils, city councillors, as well as a member of the Legislative Council and a member of the Legislative Assembly. They also included doctors, barristers, businessmen, miners and wage earners. Delegates came from the districts of Ballarat, Bendigo, Beechworth, Bacchus Marsh, Brighton, Collingwood, Colac, Carisbrook, Dunnelly, Emerald Hill, Friars Creek, Geelong, Gisborne, Heathcote, Heidelberg, Kyneton, Melbourne, North Melbourne, Mount Blackwood, Nine Mile Ovens, Paran, Richmond, St Kilda, Seymour, Southburg, Sebastopol, Tarangagao, Templestowe, Williamstown, Woolshed Ovens and Wangaratta. The delegates were welcomed by the chairman of the Victorian Land League, Thomas Slater. The chairman stated, The delegates come pledged to no principles, save as they might have pledged themselves to the districts from which they were delegated. Tom Loder vacated the chair and the meeting became a meeting of the convention. Mr William Henry Henry Wingfield, one of the two members from Denunley, was called to the chair and the meeting was declared open. Nuts and bolts. The convention selected a committee to prepare material for the convention to discuss. The committee convened at 11am every morning to organise the agenda for the full convention. The full convention met at 7pm every evening to discuss and make decisions about the material put before it by the committee. The committee that had been appointed at the opening of the convention elected were Wilson Gray as President, Sir George Stephen and Michael Prendergast as Vice Presidents, Thomas Loder and Michael Keeley as Treasurers and J.J. Walsh as Honorary Secretary on the morning they first met. The full convention approved of the committee's appointments that evening. The members of the convention took their responsibilities as delegates seriously. That evening, it was determined that the business of the first two meetings should be to call upon all the delegates to express the opinion of their respective districts on the subject of the land bill then before Parliament and the principles proper to embodied in such a bill as would meet the wants and wishes of the people of the colony. Many of the delegates came with specific resolutions from their districts. Others pres- presented the predominant opinions of the represented the, re- the predominant opinions in their districts. Delegate after delegate stood up at the convention and presented resolution after resolution from their district. The condemnation of the land bill, the Haynes Land Bill before the Victorian Parliament, was universal. Once the opinions of the delegates had been elicited, the convention proceeded to frame resolutions which would embody the general views that had been expressed and which, and which would receive the assent of the delegates and of the, and of the districts they represented. The delegates understood that decisions made by the convention would have to be ratified by the districts they acted as delegates for. The land convention that occurred between the 15th of July 
1857 to the 6th of August 1857 was an example of direct democracy in action. The difference between the representatives in the Victorian Legislative Assembly and Council and the delegates of the Land Convention, which was held across the road to Parliament House, was great as the difference between chalk and cheese. Nitty gritty. A number of resolutions were, after exhaustive discussion, put to the delegates. On the fifth day of the conference, on the evening of the 1st of July 1856, the first resolution that all exclusive that the all-exclusive occupation of Crown lands for pastoral purposes should cease and such lands be open as free pasturage for the public. After another lengthy discussion, the resolution was passed by 52 or 53 delegates present at the convention that evening. The second, That same evening, discussions began on the second resolution that every adult person shall have a right to select a claim of land not exceeding the number of acres to be determined at a uniform price without auction. The motion was supported by 52 of the delegates and opposed by two of them. The next resolution, the right of free selection to be exercised by the actual cultivator should not be confined within the surveys but should extend over all alienated lands, surveyed or unsurveyed, elicited a great deal of debate. The resolution was debated for two nights. On the second night, the resolution was unanimously adopted by the delegates. Paper after paper, resolution after resolution was passed unanimously by the conference until a resolution was presented on the 31st of July that allowed selectors who couldn't cultivate land to purchase land from the state. Mr O'Connor, a delegate from Ballarat, and Mr Mooney, a delegate from Sebastopol, placed the following amendment before the convention. That this convention cannot recognise the rights of the state, which is merely the trustee of the people, to alienate any portion of the wastelands except on the terms stipulated heretofore by the convention. Substantial occupation. There were 46 delegates in the room for the discussion. Six supported the amendment, two declined to vote, and 38 voted for the original resolution which allowed selectors to select or buy land from the state without immediately occupying it. The convention convention worked on two levels. It debated resolutions and delegates made decisions according to the mandate given to them by the meetings they acted as delegates for. The delegates also appointed a select committee to arrange a meeting with the Chief Parliamentary Secretary, Mr Haynes, and they entered into discussions with the parliamentary minority that opposed the Haynes Land Bill. Same old story. The new government that was selected that was elected under the Responsible Government Act that was granted to the colony in 1856 was elected under the pre-Eureka Constitution that had been sent to Britain for approval in March 1854. Property qualifications were used to restrict who could stand for Parliament and qualifications were used to restrict who could vote election. It is no wonder the first ministry that was elected was a Conservative administration. Faced with a call for land reform, the new administration, led by William Charles Haynes, was compelled to introduce the Crown Lands Bill of 1857. The passage of this bill through Parliament was the catalyst that led to the sitting of the Land Convention. The legislation 
was almost identical to the 1847 Orders in Council. Its passage would legalise the squatter's land monopoly. The Land Convention sent a deputation of 12 delegates to put their case before Mr Haynes. Their request that the land bill be withdrawn from the Legislative Assembly was rejected. Faced with growing public hostility, Mr Haynes assured the deputation that no bill should be passed that any future legislative might not repeal. His assurances were published in The Age, The Herald and The Argus. On the third reading of the bill in the Legislative Assembly on the 3rd of September 1857, Mr Ireland, the member for Castlemaine's motion that the bill should be altered, be inserted in the land bill, was rejected by the Legislative Assembly. It seems in 1857 a politician's word was worth as much as it was, as it is, in 2017. On the 29th of July, 1857, 30 delegates from the Land Convention met the parliamentary minority who opposed the bill in the Legislative Assembly in a committee room in Parliament House. As was to be expected, their arguments against the Haynes Land Bill were fully endorsed by the parliamentary minority. The Land Convention delegates called on the Legislative Assembly to suspend the debate on the Land Bill. We therefore humbly pray that your Honourable House will, in its wisdom, suspend all legislation upon this subject until an alteration in the electoral law shall give a more full and fair representation of all classes in the community. The Land Convention believed they were the only body that truly represented the will of the people on the question of land reform. In their eyes, the 1857 Parliament was a sham because the qualifications for candidates and electors excluded a significant portion of the community from participating in government protest. The Convention delegates were adamant that land bill or no land bill, any legislation passed by the Legislative Assembly would not be honoured by the people. It issued a warning. Two, capitalists and others whom it may concern that no public faith was pledged to the recognition of any interest that the bill might pretend to vest in the pastoral tenants and that such interest, if created by it, will be annulled by the first parliament in which the people of the colony should find themselves represented. The full convention declared the land bill before parliament was both objectionable and unconstitutional. Delegates agreed to take the Convention's unanimous declaration against the bill back to the people they were acting as delegates for and organised protest across Victoria against the bill. The Convention also passed reforms on immigration at the public expense parliamentary immigration at the public expense, parliamentary reform, mining and private property and Chinese immigration to Victoria, before adjourning on the 6th of August 1857. The Convention authorised a committee of 21 to continue sitting in Melbourne. That this Convention, before adjourning, do appoint a committee of 21 of its members as a Council of Correspondence and Administration to sit in Melbourne and meet from time to time as they shall deem expedient. Such councils consist of six members from the Goldfields, 
three from the country districts and 12 from the metropolitan and suburban districts. The Convention's last resolution that the delegates be requested on return to their several localities to establish local leagues meant that the work of the Convention continued long after the Convention adjourned. Despite the Land Convention, the Land Bill passed its third reading in Legislative Assembly on the 3rd of September 1857 by a majority of 30 to 23. The Bill gave public lands to the squatters and protected leases. The Bill made it easy for the squatters to turn their leases into private property for a peppercorn fee. Interestingly, Peter Laylor, one of the two members for Ballarat and the elected leader of the Eureka Rebellion, voted for the Bill, while Humphrey, the other member for Ballarat and the leader of those miners who opposed the use of violence in the Eureka Rebellion, voted against the Bill. Laylor's decision to vote for the Land Bill destroyed Laylor's reputation on the Ballarat goldfields. Knowing he would never win a seat in Ballarat again, he moved to a Conservative seat so he could successfully contest the next Legislative Assembly election. The irony of it all. On Tuesday, the 8th of September, 1857, the Land Bill was introduced to the Legislative Council and read for the first time. John Faulkner, the very same Faulkner who battled for the dubious honour of founding Melbourne with the deceased former convict John Batman, proposed the second reading be deferred for a fortnight. On Tuesday the 22nd of September 1857, Mr Mitchell moved that the bill be read a second time. After a few hours of debate, the amendment was eventually put to a vote for a second time. It was defeated 21 to 6. The Legislative Council, confident that they had the measure of the Legislative Assembly, rejected the land bill, but the squatters, because the squatters were unhappy with the minor challenges that Haynes' 1857 land bill posed for them. The conventionists, although elated that the bill had not passed the Legislative Council, realised that the defeat of the land bill in the Upper House was only a pyrrhic victory. The squatters had misjudged the public mood and unwisely threw out the Haynes' land bill. They failed to realise their actions would only fuel the fires of radical change. The land question continued to be an issue in the Victorian Parliament for years. The conventionists, emboldened by their success, continued to meet in the eastern markets opposite Victoria's Parliament House, agitating for land reform. The petering out of alluvial gold mining, increased immigration and the stranglehold of squatters continued to exercise over land helped to stoke the fires of dissension. Matters came to a head in 1860 when the Nicholson Service Ministry introduced the 1860 Land Act into the Legislative Assembly. The Land Act allowed Victorians to select small parcels of land around 320 acres for one pound an acre and the Act allowed payments to be deferred. When the Legislative Legislative Council rejected the bill, the Nicholson Service Ministry resigned in protest in the middle of 1860. All hell breaks loose. The resignation of the Nicholson Service Government in the mid-1860s gave a shot in the arm to the regular convention meetings that had been held at the Eastern Market opposite Victoria's Parliament House since the convention met in 1857. Mass meetings which attracted hundreds, sometimes thousands of men, had taken place every week at the Eastern Markets. 
The land question continued to be on everybody's lips because the squatter-dominated Legislative Council continued to stymie the will of the people on the question of land reform. On the 28th of August, 1860, thousands of men assembled in the space between the House of Assembly and the Legislative Council to hear the land debate. When the Legislative Assembly adjourned at 6.30pm, the protesters returned to the eastern markets to hear speeches given by land convention delegates. The crowd, angered by the parliamentarians' antics, rioted. Every window in both the Legislative Assembly and the Council and the council were broken. Protesters were involved in pitched battles against the police for the next three hours. Nine constables were injured and scores of protesters were taken to hospital. The next evening, the Unlawful Assemblies Act was debated in Parliament. The parliamentarians were divided into two camps. Those who supported the draconian measures in the Unlawful Assemblies Act and those who refused to pass legislation that will result in serious inroads on the privileges and even on the liberties of the subjects in the colony. Those that opposed the Unlawful Assemblies Act waited, wanted the causes behind the riots, the urgent need for land reform, not the symptoms addressed. The Unlawful Assemblies Act was eventually passed and money was allocated to build four gun emplacements in Parliament House in Spring Street, Melbourne, to deal with future rioters. A number of attempts by the Second O'Shaughnessy Duffy Government in 1862 and the efforts by the McCulloch Grant government in 1865 and 1869 came to nothing. The squatters continued to exercise a monopoly over land in Victoria. The introduction of universal manhood suffrage for the Legislative Assembly eventually took the steam out of the Victorian land reform movement. Surprisingly, people were willing to put their faith in the parliamentary process, although the Legislative Council the Upper House continued to be dominated by squatters. The failure of land acts in 1860, 1862, 1865 and 1869 to tackle the squatters' monopoly over land forced those who wanted to break this monopoly to adopt new strategies. The Land Tenure Reform League of Victoria was formed in the early 1870s to pressure Parliament to levy taxes on landowners to try to ensure that land speculators and squatters alike paid a fair share of the state's taxation burden. 2017, 160 years later, after the Victorian Land Convention, Victorians and Australians face exactly the same problem that were faced by people in 1857. Parliamentary democracy has not turned out to be the universal panacea it was expected to be. Parliamentary rule does not reflect the will of the people. It is little more than two minutes of illusory power. Every few years, people are forced by legislation to give signed black cheques to politicians to make decisions for them for the next three years. To compound the charade, real power in a capitalist society does not lie in Parliament. It lies in the boardrooms of national and transnational corporations. Parliamentary democracy has as much to do with democracy as the Australian Football League has to do with promoting soccer in Australia. Democracy, rule of the people, by the people, for the people, is best delivered through the election of delegates with limited mandates than by parliamentary representatives. The time has arrived for the establishment of a political movement that promotes direct democracy as an alternative to parliamentary rule. The Land Convention 
160 years ago, was based on direct democratic principles. Communities around Victoria in 1857 elected recallable delegates with mandates for the Land Convention to tackle the issues that were important to them. Today, we need to take a leaf out of their book. We need to reinvent democracy. The time has come for the debate about what democracy is and how best to create a community that reflects the will of the people to be placed on, to, is to be placed on the political agenda in this country. Parliamentary democracy is a moribund ideology in, urge, in urgent need of resuscitation. It is an idea whose time has come and gone. The problems we face as a community in the 21st century are so overwhelming we need participation from as many people as possible to successfully tackle them. Technological innovations and the urgent need for radical parliamentary reform make direct democracy a viable and necessary option. I encourage you to become involved in movements to create a society based on direct democratic principles where the people involved in the decision make the decision and elect or appoint delegates to coordinate those decisions at a local, regional and national level. Thank you for listening to me uh, regarding the Victorian Land Convention, 1857, Direct Democracy in Action. Later on in the year, we'll be holding a celebration to mark the 160th anniversary of the Victorian Land Convention in uh, July uh, 2017. Hopefully uh, today's program gives you an idea about what parliamentary democracy is, what's the difference between delegates and representatives and how people in this in Australia have struggled for a direct democratic alternative. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week. This program has been, um, has been um, taped um, because I'm not around. But you can leave messages on 0439 395 489. I'll return in a week or so. Or you can write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. You can go to my Facebook page, Toscana, the number four, the public. You can go to the Pipsy website, download public interest before corporate interest application form. Because it's amazing, isn't it? In 2007, when I did this original research, because I just learnt about the Land Convention, I was the only person in this country that actually marked the event. In 2017, 10 years later, the 160th anniversary, I'm confident there'll be many more people marking this event because the Victorian Land Convention holds the key to changing society. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcasts via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org. The program next week will also be be pre-recorded. Listen to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.